Good morning. Many of you might recall and remember from last week that I mentioned that we would be starting a short topical series before we come back to the book of Philippians on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I'm very excited to do so. And it just so happens that on our calendar is a perfect spot for that with next week marking the remembrance of Pentecost Sunday, the giving of the Holy Spirit to the church and its subsequent birth. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we read of this magnificent gift that was still yet to come on that day. The word says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. My main overall objective for these next two weeks is to better equip us to rightly divide the word of truth as well as be able to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. From a personal perspective, this topic is very near and dear to my heart. And that being said, I think it would be helpful if I provide a little bit of that experience for some context. Now, after receiving Christ in 1996 as my Lord and Savior, a good friend of mine encouraged me to become a member of his church. It just so happens that that church believed that signs, wonders, and miracle gifts were still in operation today. Now, as a new believer, I obviously had no experience with this, and from that perspective, I accepted that and received that as truth and was exposed to that teaching for approximately eight years in my walk with Christ. However, during that time, the Lord providentially exposed me also to the teaching of John MacArthur's ministry through his radio ministry. It was during that time and through that ministry that the Lord began the process of moving me away from this type of teaching. Also, giving me, I believe, by the grace of God, experience that would be beneficial and worthwhile to the body of Christ for the future. I've seen the dangers firsthand of this type of doctrine and theology. Unfortunately, for the better part of a century now, the charismatic movement, in some respects, has hijacked the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The charismatic church has contributed to an environment where orthodox evangelicals at times, unfortunately, shy away from this beautiful gift that has been given to the church. Fearful to speak of it. Fearful to be connected with claims of raising people from the dead or prophesying the future or perhaps speaking in tongues. Next week, we'll spend more time 
on the power and the ministry of the Spirit, perfectly situated on Pentecost Sunday, from us to look at it from a positive perspective and to not run from this doctrine, but to embrace this Spirit that indwells us as born-again believers. This morning, though, we need to address why we do not believe the Spirit is working through people in miraculous ways anymore. Notice I said through people. God is still a miracle-working God. There is no greater miracle the world will ever see than a sovereign work of the Spirit drawing spiritually dead sinners unto salvation. Obviously, we still, as believers, still pray, if it be the Lord's will that he might heal and restore individuals when it seems as though all hope is lost. We desire that. We pray if it be the Lord's will that that would be the case. However, when it comes to people, why do we believe that signs and wonders and miracle gifts are no longer in operation today? This morning we'll examine several selected scriptures for several reasons for that case. Now, now let me warn you, if you're not a note taker, today might be the, the day to start. In many respects, we'll be drinking through a fire hose. But I think it's important. Yeah. Some texts I'll, I'll ask you to turn to as we examine them together. Others I'll simply just reference. In addition, it's very important that I reference the fact that much of my material in this study comes from a sermon that was done in 2013 by Pastor Tom Pennington at the Strange Fire Conference in Los Angeles, California at Grace Community Church. As a central scriptural element behind what we examine today, would you stand as we read from Jude, the only chapter of that book, verse 3. God's word says and proclaims, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all handed down to the saints. Thanks be to God for his word that was once and for all, especially for us here, handed down to the saints. You may be seated. Our first reason is the unique role of miracles. Now, narratives often can be mis misconstrued to portray a truth that is not actually the case. Unfortunately, in some respects, 
This is what we see regarding our idea and perception of what miracles take place, how they are communicated, when they take place during the accounts of of Scripture. In all reality, we only see throughout the pages of Scripture three major time periods where there are an abundance of miracles. Those three are comprised of Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, and Christ and his apostles. And examining these timelines, we know that the timeline of human history is approximately 6,000 years. And in those 6,000 years, looking at those specific three times within that history, Miracles in abundance have only taken place within 200 years approximately of those 6,000. That being said, when it comes to the true biblical narrative, the actual role of miracles is unique and infrequent. So why are miracles unique and infrequent? The answer lies within their purpose. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 4. Within this account, Moses was concerned with whether or not the Egyptians would believe or listen to him. God had called him to be his mouthpiece and Aaron to be his prophet. In that account, he was instructed, Moses was instructed to pick up a staff that had just recently become a serpent. And then in verses 4 and 5, we read, But the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. When we think of the purpose of miracles, this is absolutely critical for us to catch. The reason for this miracle working power, as we see clearly within this text, was to confirm Moses' authority as a messenger from God. Or, what about the famous account of Elijah and the prophets, prophets of Baal? We know that account. Prior to God raining down fire upon that offering, Elijah prayed the following, and you don't need to turn there, from 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 36. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And I have done all of these things at your word. In order for Elijah's authority 
to be established, God moved miraculously to affirm and establish his prophet, his messenger. When it comes to Christ, the confirmation of authority continues to be on display. Turn with me to the Gospel of John as we look at several examples. First, being in John chapter 5, verse 36. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given to me to accomplish the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. Did you catch that? The very works testify about me were Jesus' words. We're after the feeding of the 5,000. What do we hear in John chapter 6, verse 14? Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Or, after asserting his deity, in John chapter 10, turn there. We hear this in verses 24 and 25. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. And then a couple verses later, in verses 37 and 38, still in chapter 10. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. So in the same manner as Moses and Elijah, miracles confirmed the authority of Christ. What about the apostles? Turn over to Acts chapter 2, again in that Pentecost event. The Holy Spirit has arrived. And now Peter, in the midst of his powerful sermon, says the following in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene. A man which attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Doesn't get much clearer than that, does it? Miracles, signs, and wonders confirming through the apostles, God's messengers, 
of Christ. Or one other one from Acts chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas preaching in the synagogues while many were believing. And yet some not believing. We hear the following in Acts 14 verse 3. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders may be done by their hands. The case continues to ring loud and clear. I'll leave you with one more, and you don't have to turn there, from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So, throughout the narrative of Scripture, we continue to see the unique role of miracles and their purpose. Well now, when it comes to that role and the purpose that they confirm, we must ask the question, here now, in this church age, one question I would say. What and where does our authority rest now? I believe wholeheartedly. And I know that many of you here within this room today, as the reformers would say, believe in Scripture alone is now our authority. There is now no more confirmation of authority that is needed outside of the 66 books of our revealed final Word of God. The late 19th and early 20th century theologian, B.B. Warfield, had this to say, and I quote, Miracles do not appear on the pages of Scripture vagrantly here and there and elsewhere indifferently, without any assignable reason. They belong to revelation periods and appear only when God is speaking to his people through accredited messengers declaring his gracious purposes. Powerful. But clearly a reflection of what we see in the text of Scripture. Our second reason is the end of the gift of apostleship. In order to grasp this temporary nature of this gift, let's examine the two scriptural accounts. I will reference them, just make a note. 
where they are listed. The first is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28. And that verse reads, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administration, various kinds of tongues. Does that provide a problem for us? No, we will see. The second reference in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. So, obviously, we can see from these two passages that some of these gifts and offices are still in operation today. Although, how do we know that some, as I am proclaiming to you, as what we affirm even in our doctrine here at Miriam Christian Chapel, that some of these gifts were temporary and only foundational? One thing is without debate. Even most charismatics will agree that there are no longer apostles in the original sense of the original 12 or Paul. Why is that? The reason for this agreement is grounded and anchored in the three qualifications that Scripture gives pertaining to what is a true prophet. A true prophet or an apostle was chosen of Christ, a witness of the resurrected Christ, and a worker of miracles. We see these qualifications in Acts chapter 1, verse 2, verse 22, Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 2, and 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, if you're taking notes. This is very important for us to consider in the overall discussion. And why is that? We can see right away from these passages that there is a significant difference in the work of the Spirit from the apostolic age to now in the church age. Secondly, it's obvious, as we've just seen, that some of these gifts were temporary. There's no one here today who is witnessing the resurrected Christ. Or thirdly, don't forget that miracles were often and frequently connected to the apostles. All of this further confirms that through the end of the apostles, we have further reason to believe that the sign gifts have ceased. But there's more. Our third reason is the foundational nature of apostles and prophets. I mentioned in the second reason 
that these gifts were temporary and foundational. Let's take a brief moment to explain the foundational nature of apostles and prophets. We all, on the natural sense, understand foundations when it comes to building structures. They serve to protect that building. They serve as a foundation that cannot be added upon once it is completed and built upon. We see the same type of picture when Paul describes the work of men that build upon the foundation of the church. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verses 10 and 11. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Foundations in general are critical in protecting the structure of a building. And as I stated, cannot be added on to once they are laid and built upon. That being said, turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. A couple letters over. As Paul lays out the context of the foundation of the church, we come to verses 18 through 21. Follow along with me. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And then, as Paul transitions in chapter 3, we see this great mystery for the Old Testament saints come to fruition and be revealed. Chapter 3, verses 2 through 5, read. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which is in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Through Christ and his apostles and prophets, the mystery has been revealed and authority has been established. And yet today, still many seek and search for mysteries to be revealed through subjective miracles, 
all the while operating as if the foundation of Christ and His Word is not enough. Let that never be the case for us as we rest in 2 Timothy chapter 3. You know the verses 16 and 17, which read, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, for righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We have everything we need now in this revealed word of God that we might be adequate, that we might be equipped for good works. The foundation of Christ and his word must be the cornerstone that we stand upon. All other ground, as the hymn writer would say, is sinking sand. Hallelujah. The fourth reason is the nature of miraculous gifts. The nature of miraculous gifts. And when it comes to this reason, once again, I've seen this firsthand. This reason is rooted in a reality that today's practice of such gifts bears absolute no resemblance to what we see in the scriptures. Let's briefly explore the gifts of tongues, prophecy, and healing for some perspective. First, regarding tongues, there are three occurrences that help to shed light. Turn back again to Acts chapter 2. And this Pentecost event that once again we will celebrate and embrace next week. Look at Acts chapter 2. I will read through verses 2 through 6. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. What do we see? What do we hear? A known language. Well, what about in Acts chapter 11, verse 15? And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. Clear. 
just as it did in the beginning, which was evidenced through a known language. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we won't turn there. But we see that the apostolic gift of tongues required interpretation and was meant for public edification. All that to say, what do we see? Practice when it comes to tongues today. Many of you already may be aware of it. As I expressed, I am innately aware of it. But what we see is an unrecognizable sound. Speaking without interpretation. And a practice that is primarily private prayer as opposed to public edification. It's beyond clear, my friends. That the nature of tongues during the apostolic age was completely contrary to what we see in the pages of Scripture. Secondly, what about prophecy? Once again, I can tell you that this is abused time and time again. Moreover, and perhaps more importantly, I don't want us to miss the massive implication if prophecy is still in operation today. Listen to the words of the Lord given to the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 1, verse 9. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Or even the prophet Agabus in Acts chapter 21. He spoke with the same verbiage as Old Testament prophets when he said, This is what the Spirit says. So what's the point? True prophets, whether Old Testament or New, spoke with authority and spoke directly from God. How do we know this to be true? Deuteronomy chapter 18 speaks to the test of a true prophet. And that he spoke on behalf of the Lord and what he spoke came true. So again, what's that massive implication I keep alluding to? If prophecy is still in operation today, foretelling the future, then the Lord is still speaking and the canon of Scripture is still open. This is very prob problematic and opens the floodgates for subjective ideas of what the Lord is even saying now? Not to mention, if you're familiar with this topic, that prophecy in today's church is 
often proved wrong and in direct violation of Deuteronomy chapter 18. Listen to the words of theologian Wayne Grudem, who admittedly and unfortunately allows for some of this erroneous thinking. He states that prophecy should not be prefaced with thus says the Lord. Instead, he suggests that prophecy should begin with, I think this is what the Spirit might be saying. What's the issue with that? (laughs) Well, how about the fact that that is completely contradictory to what we see in the Word of God? Is that not enough? I know it is for us. And it should be for the body of Christ as a whole. More to that in my conclusion. And then finally, the gift of healing. There's much that we could say here, but for the sake of brevity, the common truth remains. The acts of healing by men within the scriptures, once again, are strikingly different from what we see in charismatic churches today. They are immediate and undeniable as opposed to incomplete or at best temporary and very much unverifiable when it comes to the signs and wonder gifts in today's church. All that to say, the nature of miraculous gifts is one in which we see clear contradiction from the scriptures in comparison to the practice of charismatic theology. Our fifth reason is church history. Before I touch upon what is commonly thought of when we consider church history, let's examine a short survey of biblical history throughout the pages of New Testament scripture we see miracles start to decline. After the ascension of Christ, ten days later, we have this miraculous event in Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost. It's not until somewhere around approximately 14 years later that we see the next mention of tongues in Acts chapter 10, verse 46. Following that same prolonged trajectory, the third mention is found in Acts chapter 19, verse 6. We know this to be around the early 50s as it corresponds with Paul's journey into Ephesus. And then after the book of Acts, the only other reference is found in 1 Corinthians, which is around 55 to 56 A.D., Moreover, we know that after 1 Corinthians, nine letters were written, and there is absolutely no mention within those letters. And perhaps even more powerful, 
the pastoral epistles where we have permanent directives given to the church and we have crickets. Nothing mentioned. And then finally, you don't have to turn there, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, we read, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Scripture's testimony by way of implication is enough in and of itself. How about a couple quotes from that church history? Augustine stated from the 300s, and I quote, In the earliest times, the Holy Spirit fell upon them that believed, and they spoke with tongues which they had not learned as the Spirit gave them utterance. That thing was done for a sign, and it passed away. Or John Calvin stated the following, and I quote, The gift of healing, like the rest of the miracles which the Lord willed to be brought forth for a time, has vanished away in order to make the preaching of the gospel marvelous forever. Or my favorite one from Jonathan Edwards. Of the extraordinary gifts, they were given in order to the founding and establishing of the church in the world. But since the canon of the scriptures has been completed and the Christian church fully founded and established, these extraordinary gifts have ceased. I love that one as it speaks directly to what we've been alluding to. Now, hopefully by now, the case is fast becoming an open and shut case for why we believe what we believe. We've looked at five reasons thus far. The unique role of miracles. The end of the gift of apostleship. The foundational nature of apostles and prophets, the nature of miraculous gifts, and then church history. All helping us to clearly see that the sign gifts are no longer in operation today. Let's look at two more reasons and then draw a couple final points of application to close. The sixth reason is the sufficiency of of scripture and this one alone I wish that I could take several Sundays just to speak on this topic I've already addressed the massive implication that if prophecy or miracles in this manner are still in operation 
God is still speaking and the canon is open. Very dangerous. And that being said, let me make a couple brief comments. Whether it's Jude verse 3 as we read as our theme verse. Or Revelation 22. Or 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 as we referenced this precious word that we cherish, that has once and for all been handed down to the saints, never to be added to, is enough in order that we might be found complete and adequate, lacking nothing. Martin Luther said the following about the great, the great Psalm 119. He said, and I quote, God wants to give you his Holy Spirit through his external word. That external word is what we referenced in our message from Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. As we looked at the great God of peace, signs, wonders, and miracles are not needed to subjectively experience this God of peace. But we experience Him through His external, objective Word that is once and for all complete and handed down to us. Precious Word it is. Our seventh and final reason is the rules for the miraculous. For this final reason, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And the nature of the miraculous gifts, we saw how today's gifts bear no resemblance to what we see in the pages of Scripture. In this final reason, we see and will see how they nearly always break every rule that was given for the practice of them as well. Follow along with me as I read verses 27 through 34, 1 Corinthians 14. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two, or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, 
as in all the churches of the saints. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are subject to themselves just as the law also says. So what do we see here in terms of rules? Two or three and one at a time? Interpretation, as we've already spoken to several times, evaluation of prophecy in regards to and against previous revelation. And women were not allowed to prophesy in a corporate worship setting. I can tell you, once again, from personal experience, these specific rules are violated at nearly every service. Let's think this through for a moment. If there was any reason to believe that these gifts were meant to continue, would they be done in order? Would they be done according to the scriptures? Of course they would. We know the answer to that question. And if some of our charismatic friends truly considered it, they would have to agree. So, take a deep breath. It's a lot to take in. But it's so essential and critical for us in order that next week and on a regular, consistent, daily basis, we embrace who the Spirit is and the power that He gives us currently in this church age. close, I want to leave you with a couple final points, as I stated, for application. First, when it comes to perhaps the majority of us here in this room that were already convinced before we came here of these truths, hopefully now you are more equipped to rightly understand and give a reason for what you believe or what our doctrinal statement expresses. Don't run from the power of the Spirit. Embrace His presence. And as we stated, I'll speak more to that next week. In, in addition, reject all forms of continuing revelation. Don't ever say, God told me. Or listen to teaching that speaks as though you are hearing God's voice. Or a whisper from God. My friends, this is dangerous and a slippery slope. You would be amazed how much of this is creeping in to orthodox evangelical circles. Be like the Bereans. 
rightly dividing the word of truth. Finally, when it comes to some who are actively involved in this type of theology, there's two different types of groups. Some who truly manifest the fruit of the Spirit and worship a biblical Jesus. I personally know several whom I love with all my heart. And I know they will spend eternity in heaven with our Lord. Those individuals speak to them with love and truth in hopes that God might show them the air of their thinking and the dangerous implications of it. However, for those who deny the foundational doctrines of Christianity and use this type of teaching to lead many astray, to fleece the flock, Speak to them in truth and love, but in another way. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Examine yourself, brother, to see that you are in the faith. Turn from your sin and trust in the biblical Jesus, not a health and wealth prosperity gospel, a name it and claim it, Theology that are leading many astray. This external word is enough. In hopes that God might save them. And once again, it's been a lot to take in. That fire hose is probably still dripping for many of you. I pray that you were strengthened and encouraged and edified and equipped. Part two, next week, will be the opportunity for us to celebrate this great doctrine on Pentecost Sunday. Embrace this power. Soldiers for Christ. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are the great comforter. You are the one that brings illumination to our souls from this precious word. You are the one that regenerated our darkened hearts. We love you. We serve you. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to remember to hide this word in our heart in order that we might not sin against you. We cherish and worship our risen King and great Father. In the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.
you stand, please, for our closing hymn.